I hope you've had a great week and I hope it's an even better night as we get into God's word. Father, please help us now as we grapple with the great truths of the scriptures, particularly about the end of the world and how we prepare. We pray that you will help us to be wise, uh, to know what you've got to say to us and to uh, put it into practice. Anything that we need to change, we pray that you'll help us to do that, to repent of what we need to repent of, to be strengthened where we need to be strengthened, to be encouraged where we need encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what do you think you're going to need for the end of the world? What are you going to need to get ready for it? I mean, not just for the very end, but for the things that are coming up to it. Yeah, Andrew, what do you reckon you're going to need? A bag. A bag. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. I guess it depends uh, on what kind of apocalypse you think is coming, uh, what you're going to need to get ready for. If it's an alien invasion, you might need sort of a mind-reading prevention helmet, uh, environmental disaster, uh, so many toxic fumes that we're not able to breathe and uh, the natural disaster scenario, a meteor crashes in the earth and destroys everything or you know, the sun just explodes, uh, takes the solar system with it or the zombie apocalypse uh, of course, uh, you, you prepare for each of those things in very different ways. If it's the media coming or the sun going to explode, what are you going to need to get ready for that? A spaceship, right? You've got to get out of here. You've got to get on the phone to NASA and get them working on the interstellar project now. Okay, so we can get into that black hole and get over to the other side of the galaxy and away from here. Uh, if it's our lack of care of the environment, what are we going to need to do to get ready? Get campaigning, get some water tanks, get you know some breathing apparatuses, uh, those kind of things. Uh, if, if it's the zombie apocalypse that's coming, well, you need, might need to rush out and make your own zombie survival kit. In fact, on Instructables, which I find is more interesting than Pinterest, by the way, but um, uh, <laughs> I looked up zombie survival kit and up came Instructables, how to make your own. Uh, you're going to need various sorts of ammunition and guns and stuff. A good comfy backpack, well done Andrew, you need a bag. There you go. Sleeping bag, earplugs to mourn out, uh, drown out the sounds of the moaning of the undead. Uh, red glow sticks, I don't know why they need to be red, but anyway, you need a machete as a close quarters weapon uh, and as a survival tool. As you go down the list, I found some interesting things on here. You need uh, 12, 12 big thick garbage bags. Why 12? I, I don't know. It says they're good for everything from waterproofing your pack to making a poncho to taking a shower. Um, I don't know how you do a shower in a... Maybe you, fill it, you hang it up. Oh, there you go. But then it won't be very good for the other things. You'll wrecked your bag. Well, basically you need 12, one for each aspect of your life. You need two, two rolls of paper towels. That'll get you through the zombie apocalypse. Uh, and it says it's good for toilet paper and snot rags. Um, that wouldn't last two days, I don't think, in our household. Um, and that's probably not even using them for tissues. But anyway, just saying. <laughs> there you go. There's five sorts of little kids and stuff, and there's me. Uh, there's a few other things that says you need. And uh, it's pretty laughable. It might seem funny, something to joke about. Uh, but there's some people who take it very, very, very seriously. Uh, here's an actual zombie apocalypse survival kit that you can buy for $24,000 US. Come on, Ben, bring it up. There you go. Uh, I'm not sure how you carry it, but it has lots and lots of guns. 
It also has um, scientific research equipment so that you can see it. It's got pipettes and uh, pipette shakers and various things so that you can work out the cause of the zombieism and stuff. And there's really not much food in there. <coughs> there is a water bottle. Um, <coughs> Judge John Hodgman, who has this uh, very funny podcast where he sorts out all your difficulties, uh, he says that you can have the... There's a... What is he called? The... Um, the super apocalypse survival kit, which has none of that stuff in it. It basically has a urine catchment bottle, which you can make water for later on, things like that. But people take it very, very seriously, and others people joke of it. And you know, you might think they'd be nutters to go out and spend twenty-four thousand dollars buying something like that. <coughs> and we'd laugh at someone if we knew them, and we'd try and talk them out of it. But isn't that exactly what the world is doing to us Christians? For we say that the end of the world is coming, that we can know about it, that it is sure, and it is coming because of the furious wrath of God who made this world and he is going to bring it down in fiery destruction and judgment, bring the whole of creation to an end. And people will scoff at us and mock us for being Christians and there will be lies told saying it's not really like that, that's not what the Bible is saying. And the letter of 2 Peter is written so that we might be prepared for that coming that we might get ready, that we might have our survival kit in order. Three things, he says, are coming uh, in this letter that we need to take heart of so that we can watch out and we can be prepared. He says false teachers are coming who are going to lie and tell lies in the name of Jesus. They're going to lie about him. They're going to lie about his coming. They're going to lie about all sorts of things. Uh, they are coming. There are scoffers who are going to mock you for being a Christian. They are coming. And Jesus himself, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And this is a letter written explicitly to warn you and me and to protect us as Christians. Warn, warn us because of the lies and the mockery which the world uh, will bring at us, which will cause us or may cause us to give up on Christ. Warn us because it's so easy to compromise your faith. Warn you because the end of the world is coming by the fiery judgment of Jesus Christ. And it's essential uh, that we know how to prepare for those three things, for the false teachers who will lie to us, for the mockers who will scorn us, and for the actual coming of Jesus, which will bring judgment upon this world. And the stuff in this letter may well be uncomfortable. I've already had several follow-up conversations after morning church about some of the things I said, particularly in the second and third talks, so you'll have to come back for them. Uh, this is a tough, strong letter Peter pulls no punches and I'm not going to pull any punches as we go through either. And for that reason, not many Christians would call 2 Peter their favourite book of the Bible. Anyone, if you thought about what your favourite book of the Bible is, 2 Peter? Anyone? The end of the world? Uh, no, people pick nice things. But this is absolutely necessary stuff. And chapter 1 sort of eases us into it by giving us the key to survival. Here's what you need to get ready. Get ready for the end of the world. So let's get into it. Let's just work through. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Who's it from? Simon Peter. Uh, who's that? He's the one that uh, after Jesus rose from the dead was told repeatedly by Jesus, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
Uh, remember, he was the one who became the head of the church in Jerusalem and he'd faced jail time, he'd faced mockery and worse for standing up for Jesus. He had his friends, like James, one of the other apostles, beheaded for being a Christian. Uh, but notice he also calls himself a servant of Jesus, or more accurately, he says, I am a slave of Jesus. He is constrained and bound and indentured to the service of Jesus and he is an apostle of Jesus. An apostle is someone who is sent someone who is sent by Jesus as a representative, a spokesman, as an ambassador. And straight away he makes sure we understand that as apostle, he's not a member of the privileged elite in the kingdom of God. See, who is this written to? To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Your faith as a Christian no matter where you are in the social pecking order of church, you know, here or you know, in the world at large, your faith as a Christian is as important, is as precious as that of the great Apostle Peter. You are loved by God just as much as he was. You are treasured by God just as much as he was. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with you being awesome, even though you might be. Uh, this faith was given to you, he says, given to you through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's who Peter writes to. Anyone who Jesus has saved, anyone who Jesus has bestowed this precious faith upon, to us who are precious to God if we are his. And we are precious to God if we are his. And here's Peter's prayer for you. He says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He asked God that his grace and peace overflow in you, that it overwhelm you, consume you as someone who is precious to Jesus. Grace from God, that is God's loving kindness, that it might be poured out on you constantly and consistently and that you might have peace with God. Not necessarily peaceful feelings because you can be deluded, but real peace with God, always knowing that he is your father, that he is no longer your enemy, that you are right with him that the arms have been laid down and that you are now on the same team. But notice how it is that you get this grace and peace in abundance that he's praying for from God to you. You get it through or through what you tell me. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through what? Not through the zombie apocalypse, no. No? Through the knowledge, through knowledge. Indeed, as the letter goes on, knowledge is the key not just to grace and peace from God, but he says it's the key to everything in the Christian life. Grace and peace, uh, that comes through this knowledge. Uh, he says a bit later on, knowledge gives you everything you need to live to please God. He says that knowledge is what's going to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive as a Christian. He says there's knowledge which will see you uh, live eternally in glory and which you and I need to be constantly reminded of, a knowledge that we need to remember, that we've got to be reminded of. And particularly so because it's a knowledge that can, can be forgotten or even worse, it can be distorted by liars, false teachers, mockers. And if you haven't got this knowledge, he says you lose everything knowing matters and it is actually the way you prepare for the future knowing something or not just knowing something it's knowing someone knowing our god and savior jesus christ 
You can know all sorts of things about someone, but that's a completely different story to actually knowing them. You can know things about Britney Spears. Apparently someone called this a Britney Mike earlier along. Uh, so I guess one thing you can know about Britney Spears is she wears mics like this. Uh, you can know things about me, that I like board games. Yay. I like fishing. Yay. Uh, there's even some interesting things to know about me. Um, but in the end, they're just, they're just factoids. It's trivia. Unless you know me. Knowing about me and knowing me are very, very different things. Knowing someone is about having a relationship with them. Now, that, of course, includes knowing information. You don't really know me if you don't know that I'm married to Alison and have three daughters because that information is part of who I am. And when it comes to God, knowing the truth about him and knowing him are intrinsically linked. All sorts of people can say they know God, but they don't really know anything about him. They're lying, they're mistaken, they've been led astray. And all sorts of people can know things about God, but not in being in a relationship with him, right? You can know true things about God, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he's all sorts of things, but not know him at all. And don't confuse the two. They, they, knowing God and knowing the truth about him come together and they're intrinsically linked. And as Peter opens the letter with the first chapter, he says that knowing Jesus changes everything. He says we've got to remember and never forget. And he says that we can be absolutely certain that what we know is, is actually the truth. I'm just going to run through those three things. Uh, let's run through it. Knowing God changes everything. See it there in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, isn't that striking? I don't know. Do you think you have everything you need for life? He says, whatever you need for life, and I take it that's both life in this world as a Christian and for eternal life, and whatever you need to be godly, whatever you need to please God has been given to you already. It's been given to you by the power of Jesus and it has come through our knowledge of Jesus who has called us to himself. It's an incredible thing that he's given us. It's astonishing. It's astonishing in what it took to do it. Uh, Jesus, as God Almighty, has the power to make worlds and destroy them. He has the power to heal. He has the power to raise the dead. And it's that strength, that power that it took for, uh, to save us from being lost sinners, facing judgment, to being his people bound for heaven. It was his power unleashed through his death and resurrection which makes that change. But it's also astonishing in how simple it is to receive it through knowing him, through hearing his message and coming to trust him. It's that simple. You accept and receive his message. And it's astonishing in the scope of its effect. He says it gives us everything we need, everything we need to have life and to get on with life, to live as his child and to live forever with him, to be godly, to please him. He's given us everything and it has all come through our knowledge of him. Now, how did we come to know him? Verse 4, through these, through his power, through his glory, through his goodness, which he's just mentioned, through these he's given us his very great and precious promises. That's how you come to know Jesus, through his promises. The promises that he made himself while on earth, the promises 
the prophets declared that he would bring, the promises his apostles have passed on to us from him in our Bibles. He promises that no matter what skeletons in the closet, for instance, no matter what dark secrets you keep, no matter how you've gone with God before this, it can all be dealt with, forgiven, made clean, because he has paid for you to come back to him. That's the promise he makes. You can start again with me, free of charge. His promise of life with him in glory forever. He promises to walk with you now through through every trial and difficulty and stick with you through thick and thin and carry you through. He promises that there's nothing on heaven or earth, neither angels nor demons nor powers nor principalities, neither height nor depth nor life nor death or anything that can separate you from his love. They are very great and precious promises he makes. They're incredibly valuable and they are so great and they are so precious that look what they do. Through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. Now he's not saying, unlike the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, that you become God when you get the divine nature. Uh, he's saying that when he forgives you and makes you his, you get to come to share in the essential qualities that are characteristic of God himself. He changes you so that you start to want what he wants and love what he loves and start to be disgusted by the things that disgust him. You start to see this world for what it is. It's not heaven. It's a broken and divided place full of bitterness and hate and hurt. And he gives you the beginnings of the ability to stand up to it and to speak out against it and to not join in with the corruption of this world. You know the old saying that even a dead dog can flow downstream. Anyone not heard that phrase before? Even a dead dog can flow downstream. There you go. Some of the people at the back, it looks like they know it. Uh, there you go. Well, just think about it. Which way can a dead dog go in if it's in a river? Well, it can either go down to the bottom or it can float along with the river. Uh, it's true. It takes the power of God through his promises to awaken you and give you what you need to go against the flow. And so can you see the importance of knowing him? And can you see how having lies and mockers steal the truth is so devastating and why he's going to write in such vehement and explicit and narky, angry terms in the next two chapters? But what should we do now that we've come to know Jesus through his promises which shape us and transform us to be like him? Well, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. What have we got to do? We've got to work on being like him. Work at it. Work at being transformed. Don't give up. Don't give in. Train hard. Run hard. You can hear the, the strenuousness in what he says. You know, make every effort. Uh, Alison, myself and three or four other people are doing uh, Biggest Loser Ingleburn 
um, and there's a weekly pot of 25 bucks each week for the person who's lost the most percentage weight that week. I haven't won any yet. I've come second every single miserable. But anyway, I'll tell you, it's a lot of effort coming second every week and not winning money. <laughs> right? Crunches, um, squats. I'm jogging, I'm riding, I got to 12 kilometres the other day and so on. But that's nothing compared to this. He's, hear the strenuous in what he says, make every effort. Like, like the athlete who's in training who diet and get up and jog every morning and push themselves to go faster and further and better. So Jesus calls on us to train hard and exercise our spiritual muscles. What does making every effort in training our spiritual muscles look like? Well, there's a checklist in those few verses there, verses 5 to 7. What does it start with? Faith. The faith that he's given us. That trust that he is good for his word, that he will deliver on what he's promised. That's the foundation on which you can start doing your spiritual stomach crunches. But it doesn't stop with faith. He says, add to faith goodness. The same word that Peter used uh, in verse 3 to describe God's moral excellences. You know, think virtue. He's saying you've got to live it out. But then he says you've got to add to that goodness knowledge. He says keep learning. Uh, that's what he's saying. Keep learning about God and his ways. You've come to know God, now keep growing in your knowledge. As you grapple with the scriptures, as you become biblically sharp, as we've been talking about through February, learn how to orient your life in accordance with God's will. Study God. Study his ways. Make it your ambition to know this better and better through life. If nothing else, know what he's got to say. There's always more to learn. You never stop learning. I'm always learning. In the last three weeks, Noah, of all things. I mean, something I've been hearing about for years. I thought, and you read stuff and you think, really? Is that in there? Uh, if you didn't hear it, got to listen to the sermons. They're being recorded uh, from Morning Church. He says, add to, add to that knowledge, self-control. And I reckon this is a really challenging one for uh, us in today's climate. Discipline. He says, let your knowledge of God lead you to determined effort, not to fall victim to sin or to temptation or things like that. Let your knowledge of God and his ways lead you to be disciplined in your spending. I've been sitting down with a couple of people from church doing budgets and uh, they want to save for goals, they want to give money to church, they want to do other things, but the money's just going out the door. Uh, various members of our evening congregation are spending $750 a month on fast food. There's no discipline there. That is a lot of money. That's thousands of dollars gone every year. Okay, make two-minute noodles, right? 50 cents. Be disciplined in what you watch, what you watch on TV or at the movies or on the internet because if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. I'm talking to several people uh, about uh, porn addiction I'm talking to several other people about various other things that are just crap that's going in and that's affecting them. You've got to be disciplined with your tongue. 
keeping lies in check, keeping the swearing in check, keeping the gossip in check. Be disciplined with your devotional life. I don't know how many people in our church struggle even to pray to the great God who has saved them, who loves them, who's called them his child, and yet it's so difficult. All sorts of ways that we need to grow in self-control. He says, add to your knowledge self-control. Add to self-control perseverance. That's endurance, the ability to bear up under opposition and mockery, which he's going to talk about later. To keep going on as a Christian, even when everyone puts you down and tells you you're, you're a jerk and you're an idiot for following Jesus. He says, add to that godliness, pleasing him, serving him and everything, working out how to honour Jesus at work or at home or at school or in your neighbourhood. To godliness, he says, add brotherly kindness. By that he means uh, love for other Christians. It's love of the brethren. It's love of the brothers. It's uh, a kind of old-fashioned way of saying that you've got to be concerned about and support and care for your church family here and abroad. So it's not easy being a Christian. And none of us can go it alone. As a Christian, you have been called into Christ's family and you've got responsibilities to us. And we have responsibilities to you to cherish each other, to encourage each other, to work out differences if and when they occur to forgive each other, to be kind to one another. See, no one else in this world, you think about it, no one else in this world is interested in you going on with Jesus other than other Christians. right? No one else could care less. In fact, the government would be very happy to let go of Scripture. They're doing an assessment on Scripture in schools this year in order to work out whether they can terminate it because it's below par and not good enough uh, and so on. So we've got to be praying for that. We've got to be working on that. But you know, no one wants churches to exist and, and you to go on following Jesus other than other people who love him. And so to perseverance, he says, add this love of the brothers. And add to that love, that goal which binds and is the crown of all Christian virtue, not the soppy, romantic, trivial, fake love that this world pretends to worship, but strong, dedicated, committed love which God has bestowed on us the love that gives everything for the good of the other, the kind of love that Jesus had for us when he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And look what the outcome of growing and pursuing and adding all these things one to the other in our lives, doing our spiritual stomach crunches. Verse 8, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the Apocalypse Survival Guide. These are not... Optional extras, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, loving the brothers, growing in the ability to love God and to love like God. They're essential things that we've got to work on. But they all come by knowing him and knowing him better and better. 
They come by his promises. They come by his word. So how are you going? You look at that list, which ones, which of that list do you struggle with the most? Is it perseverance? You give up too easily? Is it self-control? You're just doing whatever, whenever the feeling takes you? Is it love? You just hate other people. Uh, is it the love of the brothers? You just think church sucks and boring. Um, it might be, but you've got to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're like me, then lots of them are hard. You're bound to struggle with them because they're all hard. Uh, no one said this was going to be easy. God doesn't say it's going to be easy. That's why he has to say, make every effort. He knows it's a struggle and always will be, but keep going. Push on, grow in them. And if you do, he says, you will never fall. If you don't push on, you will fall. And he says, we do it together, we exhort and encourage each other in it. So that's the effect of knowing Jesus. He changes everything. But then the second point, real quick, he says we've got to remember. If knowledge, knowing him is the key, then we've got to remember. Verse 12. So I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of the body because I know that I'll soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And... I will make every effort to see that after my departure you'll always be able to remember these things. What's the word he keeps repeating through there? Remember. Remember. Say it with me. Remember. Okay, you've got to remember. Remember. What have you got to remember? To remember. Right. The key thing to do as a Christian is remember. Remember the truth. Remember Jesus. And it totally makes sense, doesn't it? If knowing is the key and we've come to know him, then we've got to remember. And we have to keep being reminded and we have to keep reminding each other of the truth. And it's that will protect us from the lies and the deceits and the mockery that can and will come our way, as we'll see. But there's one more thing Peter wants to say before he gets to the guts of the letter and the big problems that, are, that we're going to face. And it's incredibly important. He says we can be absolutely certain that we have the truth now, that we haven't been led astray, we've got the truth now. You can know that we really know God, if you like. How can we be sure that we're right, that Jesus is the one, that God is good for his promises, that he's worth all the effort? Well, two reasons. One, because it's not made up fairy tales and two, because God's prophecies have been fulfilled. It's not fairy tales. What we, uh, uh, we know Jesus is true because it's historical fact. Peter says, I was there. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And if, you, if you're familiar with the gospel story, He's recounting that moment 
Uh, in Mark chapter 9, it's one of several places, you know, this turns up in each of the different Gospels. Moment, about halfway through Jesus' ministry, he's on the, this mountain which is going to be called the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, it's a time when he took uh, three of his buddies, uh, Jesus went up the mountain with Peter, James and John, and they went up the hill and they were up there and this voice boomed out from heaven declaring who Jesus was. And what's really interesting, though, is this voice from heaven, it's God's voice, quotes the Old Testament. That's pretty weird that God quotes himself. He uh, quotes two different passages from the Old Testament, two very different passages, and he sort of mashes them together. The first part of the quote is from Psalm 2, uh, which we read, the Psalm of the Messiah, where the promise is made that the king of the world is going to be sent from God and that all the nations who now mock and scorn God are going to end up bowing the knee to this Messiah. They will come and face his judgment. This is my son. That is the one who the nations will bow before, though they mock now. This is my son whom I love. Psalm 2 verse 7. But then the second half of the quote is from Isaiah 42 and verse 1 with whom I am well pleased. It's a prophecy about some guy who's not very impressive at all. It's a servant, a servant who's going to come and he's going to suffer and he's going to take upon himself the sins of the world and he's going to be so beaten and battered and bruised, he's going to be disgusting to look at, no one is going to care and they're just going to dismiss him. And God himself in this voice booming down from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration put these two prophecies together which no one else had ever associated before that the king and the ruler of the world, the suffering servant who is coming to save us from our sins are actually the same person. This is him, Jesus, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, I was there, I heard the words, it's not just a fairy story. And what's more, that everything that Jesus did and said, how he died and how he rose again and ascended to heaven, was exactly what God had said would happen hundreds of years beforehand. And that's the final evidence that we can be certain we stand on a sure foundation because God has fulfilled his promises. Verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. You will do a world to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus has come. Jesus has fulfilled every promise except for one. One promise Jesus has not fulfilled, that he's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. The promise which we'll see over the next two weeks is the very point of the attacks of the false teachers and prophets who will lie and deceive you in the name of God. And it's that same promise which is the subject of the scorn of the mockers who think we're complete idiots for believing that he's coming, that God cares, that God's going to do anything. And Peter says we've got to be on our guard, we've got to take our guard against both those groups. Never lose heart. Always remember Keep growing as a Christian. Let God do his work in you. God's word is sure and through it he has given us his very great and precious promises by which we have come to know him.
that we've become his, that he's become ours, our God and Father, the one who loves us. Father, we pray, please, that you would help us always to remember and never forget, to not be deceived, to not give in to the scorn around us, but to push on, to grow in our relationship with you. We thank you. You've given us everything we need already in your Bible. You've given us your promises by which we know you as our Father, that our sins are forgiven. And we pray, please, that you would do your work in us, that you would help us as we work on adding to our faith goodness and self-control and perseverance and love for the brothers and godliness and love. Father, please do that work in us. If there are sins that we need to deal with, Father, we pray that we might be able to talk about them with our Christian brothers and sisters even tonight, and then we might put them to bed. We pray, please, if there is, if we're afraid of what people are saying and we don't stand up for you, that you'll give us strength. We pray if there are areas of difficulty or concern that we're struggling with, that you'll help us to get help with them. And we pray that you'll help us to do the hard work we need to do in response to knowing you. We thank you that we're not saved by our works but by your grace and love, that we're at peace with you. But we pray that you'll help us to add these things one to the other so that we'll never fall. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.